who are uh, struggling to stay up with a reading or maybe a bit behind, and their folks have given up entirely. So, because uh, I've been in all three of those groups in the past, so I understand that. So, our endeavor, will, if we go through that, will, will be to make sure that we, we cover what's in there for folks who haven't done the reading or maybe a bit behind, but also get enough, enough depth so folks who are you know, actually doing the reading and thinking about it during the week will be stimulated and, and challenged as well. So, I know that's a, a challenge sometimes, but that is our, that is our endeavor. We talked last week about the doctrine of God. Remember the whole, the big picture of the book is he's examining the areas in our lives where what we say we believe doesn't match up with how we actually live our lives. And he goes through the various doctrines of the Bible. Twelve he picks out and, and looks at how that plays out in our lives. So we looked at uh, doctrine of scripture several weeks ago, and we looked a couple weeks ago at the doctrine of God, what that means. Today we're going to just wrap up briefly going to do a quick overview of what we talked about uh, two weeks ago with the doctrine of God, and then move into the, uh, the practical application of that, what he calls uh, you know, everyday living with the doctrine of God. I'm going to start out by talking about uh, another historical figure. My daughter told me a couple weeks ago I could no longer talk about Benjamin Franklin, because she was tired of hearing about Benjamin Franklin, so no more Benjamin Franklin. Today we're talking about Winston Churchill, another fascinating historical figure. You know, Churchill was very famous for his, uh, for his quips, his, his quotable quotes. You may have heard the one where he was at a dinner with, uh, with Lady Astor, who told him that, Winston, if you were my husband, I would poison your coffee. He responded by saying, if I were your husband, I would drink it. Another uh, <laughs> funny ones like that. But he also said that, uh, I think it was a speech in the House of, House of Commons, he said basically that uh, he wasn't concerned about how history would treat him because he was going to write that history. And he did write that history, or a lot of history. In fact, uh, for many years after World War II, he was wrapped up in writing a six-volume history of the war. He had a whole team of researchers and writers who worked for him. In fact, he negotiated a deal with the British government to have control of his, his papers as prime minister. And uh, he was able to have, uh, basically, you know, ownership of those and use those as, as part of his, uh, his writing project. And of course, the books that came out were, uh, in Churchillian fashion, very self-serving. Uh, glorified Churchill's role in the war, glorified Britain's role in the war, really gave Britain an outsized uh, role in the conflict. You know, basically after, after mid-1941, when the Nazis, I'm going to talk military history, it's my favorite topic, so Nazis invaded Russia, uh, Britain became, became kind of a backwater in the war, and especially in late 1941, the U.S. ended with the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Uh, Britain's role in the war took a, took a back seat. But uh, in his, his series of books, well, the role of Britain, the first couple of years of the war, takes an outsized importance. So, so Churchill wrote a lot of history. We have a God who, who, wrote, who wrote history as well, and he continues to write history. He writes history because he's the author of all of history. He's the creator. He's the judge, the redeemer. He's writing history from the beginning to the end. He's also written history in this book, recorded it for us. And unlike Churchill... When God writes history, it's perfectly fitting that he should be the central character in his story, that all the history should glorify him and serve his purposes. We talked last week about this. If you could compact everything the Bible says about God's character and works into one word, if you could like smush it down into one word, what would that one word be? Search of the G. Glory. Yeah, if we could, if we could compact everything the Bible says about God's character into one word, that word would be glory. And it's perfectly fitting that, that God glorifies himself, that we glorify God. Let me just give one brief example from Scripture, how that plays out for the book of Exodus. You remember the story of Exodus? 
They come out from uh, Egypt. They're uh, led up to Mount Sinai. They're given them Ten Commandments. And no sooner has that happened than what do the Egyptians do when Moses is up on the mountain? Uh, what do the Israelites do? Make a golden calf, right? God wants to destroy the Israelites. He wants to wipe them out and start over with Moses. Moses pleased with God on the basis of God's character not to do it. He says, uh, what will Egyptians think of you? He brought your people out from Egypt just to wipe them out in the desert. So God finally relents and decides he's not going to wipe them out. And at this point, Moses asks for something that's, that's kind of strange, right? Moses had seen the burning bush. Moses had been on the top of Mount Sinai and seen the fire and the smoke and all this. But at this point, Moses asks to see God's glory. Uh, and this comes immediately after a section where it talks about Moses going out to the tent of meeting and talking with God face to face. So Moses has this incredible relationship with God, but for some reason, this is different. He's asking for something different. He's asking to see his glory. What he's asking for is to see, to see the very essence of God. That, like we talked about uh, last week, the glory is the sheer intrinsic godness of God. Moses wants to peer into the very essence of who God is here. And does God let him do this? He says, no, you, you can't do that, Moses. No one can see my face and live. And this is different from seeing his face before the tent of meeting. This is like, you can't see who I am in my pure glory. No one can see me and live. So instead of that, God says, I'm going to pass by, show you my backsides. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock while I pass by. So God does that. He hides Moses in the cleft of the rock as he passes by. So it says here, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So instead of God giving Moses a glimpse of his you know, pure glory, he gives them a definition of who he is, his character. His character as a God who saves and judges. So when you see God's name in Scripture, when you see the name of the Lord, think about this definition here God gives us of his own character. He is a God who saves and judges. And he does it all for his glory. And that's really the whole story of Scripture. In fact, some, some have argued that the God glorifying himself in salvation and judgment is really the central story of all of Scripture. Everything God does in salvation and judgment is for his glory. He creates us for his glory. So if I could sum up the whole last class talking about doctrine of God in one word, it would be God's glory. He does it all for his glory. He goes on to say that we are, we are glory hounds. We seek glory. God has made us to seek glory and search after glory. But because of our sinful nature, Tripp says that we are glory thieves. We, we rob God of the glory that's, that's rightfully his, right? I think we do that in a couple of ways. We glorify ourselves. We live in a society where we see that all around us. I mean, social media, and people are glorifying themselves. And I think we also glorify God's substitutes. We glorify things that, that aren't God. In this strange time in society, we have this label called idols. We have, you know, pop idols and teen idols. We have a, a TV show called American Idol that uh, used to make pop idols but doesn't anymore. But I think all of us probably have figures in our lives that we've, we've admired, look up to, probably in a healthy way, that we're looking for glory in the creature instead of the creator. And we could probably all have stories of that. I know uh, one of the figures that I glorified was Larry Bird. Anybody a basketball fan? 
I grew up here in Seattle for, uh, you know, until I was in middle school, time frame. I grew up a huge Sonics fan. They won the championship in 1979. Dennis Johnson was my favorite player. I moved to Rhode Island for a couple years when I was in, um, a junior in, in high school, and uh, we got Celtics games every night. I just fell in love with, uh, with the Celtics. Larry Bird is my favorite player. I finally got a chance to see him play when I was in college. It was very, his very last year, I got a chance to see him play against the, uh, what were then known as the Washington Bullets, now the Washington Wizards. And uh, by this time, at the end of his career, he, he, could, he was really having some back problems. He would spend a lot of the game lying on the floor on his stomach because his back hurt so bad. But uh, near the end of the game, they were down by three points to the, to the Bullets. He comes off the bench, and what do you think he does? He hits a three-pointer at the end of the game to tie the game up. He lost in overtime. But for me, that was like the ultimate. I got to see my hero, Larry Bird, hit a three-pointer to send the game into overtime. Not long after that, when I finished college and was traveling across country, I got to stay in his hotel in Terre Haute, Indiana, which was the ultimate. I mean, but I think we all have figures like that that we probably have an unhealthy glory for, right? And we see this manifest in all sorts of ways in our lives, that we are glory thieves. We will find something to get glory to. And the only, the only healthy way to exercise that is glorifying the one who's, who's worth being glorified, right? To glorify God. So we finished just talking about that in the last section of that doctrine of God, how God's grace is the only thing that can defeat this, this glory war, he calls it in our hearts, where we have this disordered glories, we glorify idols or glorify ourselves. Let's move on to the uh, God in Everyday Life, chapter four here. We'll, we'll work through this briefly. And what he does, he asks this question, you know, if, if this is all true, if it's true that God is who he says he is, if we believe this, how should this impact our lives? So on the beginning of chapter four there, I guess page 75, he talks about how this should impact our lives. The fact that if God is God, this should be the central focus and reality of our existence, right? Uh, but he says that uh, there are basically four ways that people can respond to, to God's existence. There are four ways that we can do this. Anybody want to tackle any of those? Four ways can we can respond to this revelation of God here. Deny it. Deny it. Yeah, we can be, this doesn't exist. There is no God. Another one. Next one he talks about, yeah, pretty. Arguably falls into the same category, but there's the classical pagan notion of God, God is a character. Okay, so yeah, the second one he talks about this idea of the, uh, what he calls the God concept. People... People say they believe in God. You can use you know, scare quotes talking about God. Certainly not the God of Scripture, but uh, you know, every time there's some survey about religious uh, landscape of America, you hear all these people talking about you know, they believe in God. What that God is, who he is, 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 left, is left undefined, right? Tripp calls this the God concept. I believe in the concept of God. Um, and these are people, you see all kinds of surveys not talking about people who are, who are nuns. They have, they have no religious affiliation, uh, so they are, they are they call nuns. They are people who are spiritual but not religious. You probably hear that a lot too. These are people who fall into these groups, the atheists who deny God's existence or believe in some sort of God figure. And uh, Brady hit the nail on the head. We talked last time about this idea that or the religion of most Americans is moralistic, therapeutic deism. God wants you to do good things. He wants you to be nice. He wants you to be happy. But he's really not too involved in what's going on in your life. He's the deistic God. He sets the world in motion, kind of leaves it to run itself. So that is the, uh, that is the God of, of most, most Americans, I think we can safely argue. And he has interesting quotes. 
The last paragraph on the bottom of uh, 76, he says, uh, we need to be aware that those of us who believe in God's existence and strive to live in light of it are generally no longer in center culture positions of influence, but now live on the fringes. I read this quote several years ago by Michael Horton. I think about it a lot when I'm reading stuff. And here's what he says. says, Once upon a time in the West, one could become an atheist or deist only with considerable difficulty. It was crazy. The founding fathers like Benjamin Franklin, John Adams were, were deists. I mean, that was kind of a, a heretical, right? He says, uh, the widespread narrative within which everyone operated rendered unbelief implausible. Today is exactly the opposite. To believe in the triune God of Scripture who speaks and acts in history requires an active apostasy from the assumed creed of our age. This the assumed belief of our age. Is this, this, you know... This is ridiculous. This is, you know, if you want to believe it, it's nice. But this is not the truth. This is not how we should base our lives. So we live in a very different world than some of our ancestors have. Very different, different country, especially. All right. There are two more categories that talks about four possible responses to this uh, talk about God. And the next one is, I believe it. I live it. I'm fully committed to loving and, uh, and serving this God. He talks about this on the top of page 78. People who live have come to God in confession, surrender, and worship. So we'll say people who, I'll say believe. People who, uh, who do what Paul Tripp says we need to do, who know what the Scripture teaches, what they believe, and actually live that out, right? But now there's the fourth category that all of us fall into in various ways. And what's that last category, if you remember? The final category he talks about. But not always. But not always, yeah. I believe, and I try to live this way, but... But not always. I, I slip a little bit. These are what he calls the, uh, the practical, what's the word next word I'm going to write? Practical atheists. Practical, have anybody heard this term before? I, I've seen it all kinds of places reading stuff. Practical atheists, people who, who confess to believe what the Bible teaches, but in terms of their daily lives and practice, you know, the fact that God exists really doesn't make an impact on their life. And I think this is, a, this is a huge category for us as Christians. I mean, some of us, you know, those of us who wake up in the morning and got something going on, get right to work and, and are busy throughout the day, and you, you go through the whole day with hardly a thought to praying, reading your Bible, and you get to the end of the day realize, wow, I went through the whole day without even hardly thinking about, about my father, praying to him. Or, Are you a practical atheist? Well, yeah, to a certain extent. That's much different than practical atheists who profess to believe what Scripture teaches, but live totally immorally resolute lives. This is a huge broad category here he's talking about. But some of us, all of us, fall into this category in some respect in our lives, right? I thought about this this week. A friend of my mom's gave me this book to read called Overcoming Apathy. Isn't that a great title? Uh, it's a good title for me because she must have known I needed to read this. It really struck a chord with me. So anytime you open a book, you go through the index, and he references John Calvin, Seinfeld, and Karate Kid, you know this is a book you need to read. So I, I had to start digging into this. So yeah, I, I grew up in the Seinfeld generation. You know, Monica and I watched Seinfeld. We were you know, young married people every Thursday night. So, But Seinfeld was famous for being a show about nothing, nothing right? He was a, sh- a show about nothing. Just all this all this minutiae in life, right? I mean, they had whole shows about 
you know, trying to find their car in the parking garage that they lost, or you know, trying to stay at a Chinese restaurant waiting for their, waiting for their table, right? I mean, every, every episode is some sort of about nothing, right? He makes the argument that uh, it wasn't a show about nothing. It was a show where trivial things were given an, given an outsized importance, you know, like, like finding a restaurant, a seat in a restaurant. And, and uh, he says, our lives are like that. So apathy doesn't mean we don't care about anything. Apathy means that our cares are disordered or disorganized or wrongly prioritized, right? The things we should care about the most are the things that get the least amount of our time and attention. This is how he describes it, this, this sort of paradox of uh, apathy, he calls it. The paradox of apathy is that uh, we are captivated by the things we don't really care about and are lukewarm to the things that in our heart of hearts mean the most to us. We don't act on what we should act on, but we are awakened to things we should probably ignore. It's really hit me, this, this living in our society, we're constantly bombarded by all kinds of stuff. I mean, social media, everything coming at us on TV and in our lives, and uh, it's easy to be fixated on things that ultimately we would, we would admit aren't really our top priorities in life, but seem to get an outsized amount of our time and attention. So he compares it to Seinfeld, how this, uh, you know, these, these shows about nothing are really shows where it's simple little things are magnified way out of proportion to role they should play in our lives. It's been a really interesting book for me to think about in terms of this practical atheism that, you know, I, I certainly profess to believe scripture. I, you know, I certainly try every day to have a quiet time, but there are certainly times in your life where little things take on an outsized importance. Your cares and what you should be prioritizing in your life are really disordered. So I think that's one of the manifestations of this practical atheism, that uh, we don't always live the way that we confess, and sometimes we live as if God really doesn't exist. We're so fixated on things that, that really shouldn't be getting our, uh, or most of our attention here in life. So I would recommend it. I haven't gotten too far into it, but I know he does, uh, he's really good about giving examples at the beginning of chapters. So one, one example further on is about Karate Kid, so I'll let you know what that one says. But uh, really, he's a professor at Biola, a Talbot School of Theology down there. It's a really interesting book. All right, so those are the four categories he talks about. Yeah, his name is Uche. I think Uche Anazor. I think he's from Nigeria. It's uh, Overcoming Apathy. It's definitely a good book for me because, yeah, I need books like that. So this has been interesting to, to ponder that in terms of practical atheism. This is the, uh, he quotes the hymn, Come Thou Fountain of Every Blessing, that line, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I just say, that is such a, every time we hear, I hear that line, wow, that it hits to my heart. Yeah, we are so prone to wander from the Lord we love and, and to, to leave him. It's only his grace that, that keeps us close. So with those four categories in mind, he goes through a, a section where he talks about, you know, what does it mean? How should it look like for us to believe? What does that look like in terms of our life? And you know, this is such a huge topic. Every page of scripture gives us some example of what believing should look like, either you know, positively or negatively. I've been reading through numbers this week and all kinds of negative examples about how belief should not look in our lives, but this is a huge topic in scripture. He just gives a, a kind of a brief summary of, of several different areas. We'll go through these very briefly in the time we have left. The first one is seeing the beauty of God's creation as he reveals himself. Uh, we talked about this uh, a little bit ago, but anybody want to share any time where they've seen something in creation that's just so just overwhelmingly beautiful or grand that, uh, I mean, they're just caught up in worship. Like, how could God make something so beautiful? Uh, just his revelation of himself in creation, just like it's almost overpowering. Anybody have that experience seeing anything? 
Yeah, Catherine. This point is that those things should be pointers to God. You know, God is giving us pointers to himself. We should see that and say, oh yeah, he, he made this. Anybody else have experience like that? Jonathan? Practice. Mandel brought us that. When you see that those simple mathematical equations <laughs> can be visualized in this endless, endless beauty, it makes no sense that a random universe that came from nothing should have num- simple equations that are connected with extraordinary beauty that is endless in scale. Sorry. It's almost like someone uh, organizes complexity in the way that could... The beauty of math, the, the pure science, right? Yeah. Yeah, how sad to, to see these things and not think about the one who made it all. Yeah, Tim. Yeah. Yeah. We could all give probably testimony to, to things we've seen. I know and we're so blessed here to live in this region. As, you know, as crazy as things are up here, um, I know living in Southern California for, for 20 years, I mean, I... I just hated looking, you know, at the brown, the brown hills, and it's so so enjoyable to come back to this area and see the you know, the beautiful the green trees and then the snow-capped mountains. And I don't drive to Seattle as much as I used to, but uh, it's amazing to drive down I-5 and you get that glimpse of Mount Rainier on, on beautiful days. Like, wow, that's just amazing, amazing. We drive to uh, Whibby all the time, and every time I drive across Deception Pass, I think, wow, this is just what an amazing, beautiful place this is, and the amazing creation that God has given us. And, those things should be pointers to him. He's saying, like a, a billboard, hey, I made this. I made this to reveal myself to you. So um, I guess the you know, lessons today is that uh, I give glory to God for his creation. You know, Calvin calls creation a theater of God's glory. He puts his glory on display for us here. Next thing she talks about is the, uh, this idea that nothing's more humbling than acknowledging God's existence. The knowledge of God should give us humility when we see who God is and if you've read, anybody read the Institutes? Sure, Nate has, right? He, he opens by talking about the knowledge of God, the knowledge of man, how they're, how they're so integrally related. He says that we can't really know ourselves until we look up and see God. When we see God's glory, his holiness, it's the brightness of his glory. I mean, it shows us who we really are in our, in our darkness and sinfulness. So when we understand who God is, we should be humbled. We should be humbled by knowing who we are. And he goes into discussion about pride. The pride is obviously the, the opposite of humility. Some of you may have read uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, where he talks about uh, pride as being the root of all sin. And he goes through an explanation of how that plays out in different, different areas. But pride is the root of all sin. He calls, in fact, the chapter on pride is called The Great Sin. Pride is the great sin. He says this, Pride is the essential vice, the utmost evil, Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. When we see God's glory and His holiness revealed in Scripture, we should be humbled to know who He is and, and who we are in relation to Him. He goes on to talk in the next section about uh, what it means to, to believe in God. There's uh, two aspects to biblical faith. There's believing that God's revelation, believing He exists, and then uh, acknowledging and worshiping Him. He quotes the, uh, the verse from Hebrews that uh, without faith it's impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. He rewards those who seek him. So we just shouldn't believe, but we should seek him, seek him as he's revealed himself to us. Uh, next section talks about that we find comfort in the fact that God hates sin. Sometimes we are comforted by the fact that God hates our own sins. He talks about imagine a world where there was a God who didn't hate sin who didn't care about sin, 
Wouldn't that be a horrible place to live? Where evil was not restrained, where people didn't try at least to live upright and righteous lives, where God had no moral standards, there was no good or bad. What a horrible world that would be, he talks about. We'll talk more about that. We'll talk, uh, we'll talk about holiness next week, the holiness of God. Obviously, one aspect of holiness is his purity, his moral purity. We'll talk even more later on in the fall when we get back into the book on, uh, on the doctrine of sin. But ponder what it means that, that God is a God who hates sin. We'll talk about that in the scripture reading this morning that I'm leading in, in Jeremiah, what it means that God hates sin. He talks about understanding what it means that, that God does not change. And this is obviously the fallout from the doctrine of God's immutability, that God does not change. The God who we read about in Exodus is the same God today. The God who revealed his character as a, as a saving and judging God is the same God we worship today. The promises he made long ago to Abraham and the patriarchs, and those promises are still, he's the same God who made those promises. He has not changed. He is faithful to his promises take comfort in the fact that, that God is faithful. God does not change. So he finishes up talking about this, what that should look like in terms of our daily practice, our belief in God. And how many of you actually, you have time dedicated in the morning where you set aside to, before you start your day, to, to reading scripture and praying? And how many, I know you folks don't have that opportunity. So how many have you actually have time to do that in the morning? So what does that look like if you want to give? And what do you do during that time that, that uh, sort, of, sort of primes your pump for the day? And how long does that take? Right? Tim? Um, well, I'm, this year I'm doing a uh, Bible in a year. And so I just I put on my workout clothes and I do the audio Bible and I just do some simple, just some simple movements um, just to kind of both physically and spiritually warm it up. And it's, it's like I really look forward to it. Uh, it's, it's like... Um, so I, spend, I have a prayer now that I use to help me stay focused on prayer, and I find actually walking while I pray helps me to stay focused as well. And then our women's Bible study, I try to go through the passage we're doing that week, um, and sometimes it's kind of doing observation, interpretation, application method, and then the book we're doing. Um, and I usually plan for it to take some Yeah, so about 15 minutes for you. Anybody else want to share what they, what their practices? Yeah. Uh, so spend uh, like five, ten minutes reading or, or talking in the Bible and thinking about uh, prayer needs, and then uh, on my game, <laughs> go for a walk, and then contemplate that while I'm walking. And at the end of the day, kind of do that and say, so you know, like, Yeah. Anybody else? I know it's, it's hard, right? I mean, it's hard you, you get up and uh, especially a lot of you are back to, to commuting to work. It's hard when you got to get up early and it's, it's dark outside and hard to get out of bed. And it's hard to make that time to get up early. I know I went for years, you know, being at work super early in the morning. It was, it was hard to get up and do that. Uh, so now when I'm not, not working, my temptation in the morning is I go to my office and I have you know, a stack of books there I'm, I'm working on. My, my temptation is to sit down and pick up one of the books I'm reading instead of the Bible is sitting next to it. And I can tell a difference in my day when, when I start reading Scripture versus when I start even you good healthy books like this. Uh, I can tell a difference in my day when I read, when I fill my, fill my soul with Scripture versus when I don't. He goes through a, a process. He calls it tuning your heart daily. It's like an uh, example he gives is a, you know, a symphony, an orchestra. 
before they will play a piece, they will, they will tune themselves, right? You know, the oboe will play an A, and they'll all tune themselves to the oboe and kind of get, get ready to, to play the, the piece. And we should be like that in the mornings as we tune our hearts to, to our Father. He gives a process like this, it, not necessarily a checklist, but some things to be thinking about and some things you should be doing as you go through this process. He talks about gazing, who gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. Take some time to, to read and meditate upon who God is and what he's done. You know, the Psalms are great for doing that. He talks about searching in terms of really you know, digging into Scripture, uh, not just doing, uh, I know I've tried years ago doing, uh, anybody do the like, daily Bible reading where they read the Bible in a year? Yeah, I tried that. It just does not work for me because I, you know, I just sit down and, and try to get it, that day checked off. And it does not work for me. I'd rather spend more time reading Scripture, take a couple years than, than uh, but some folks enjoy that, enjoy that uh, daily process. But regardless of what we do, we should spend some time actually digging into the depths of Scripture, you know, mining it for the treasures that are there, more than just a superficial reading. Talks about worship. He says, uh, top of 92 there, worship, fight letting your study of God and his word be an intellectual academic exercise alone. And that's, as Reformed Christians, that is certainly a temptation for us to let our study of Scripture be an academic exercise, not an exercise that leads us to worship him. We talked a bit, a bit about that a couple weeks ago. Surrender. As you come before him in the morning, surrender your heart, surrender your daily activities, surrender everything you are to him for the day. Um, examine your hearts. It's the idea of confession, examine your heart, see what's in there, confess, um, cry out to glorious God that he would, I love how he phrases this, about the middle of 93 there, uh, cry out to your glorious God that he would rescue you from you during this day. I remember reading years ago in Genesis, and the author was talking about how in the book of Genesis, you know, God is so faithful to his promises, even after the patriarchs, I mean, how many times they mess things up over and over and over. And that the greatest threat to the promises being fulfilled were the patriarchs themselves. They were the greatest threat to God's promises. And in our lives, we are the greatest threat to God doing his work in our lives, right? It's, it's us, it's our hearts. So I think this is a great idea to, at the beginning of the day. Cry out to God that he would rescue you from you that day. Um, you were the greatest threat to, to yourself during that day. Talked about celebrating and then uh, kind of, you know, wash, rinse, and repeat. Just do this over over this pattern every day. Not necessarily a checklist, you don't need to go down and check them off every day, but that's the, the pattern you should have in our lives every day. As we seek to live uh, what it means to glorify Him, what it means to believe in Him, how that practice should play out every day, living a, living a surrender life. All right, so that is the quick and dirty on, uh, on this chapter here. Um, any questions or thoughts before we wrap up here? I'm feeling particularly feisty with myself and irritated with my lack of piety. You know, and I look at a Muslim praying five times a day and on his, on his or her rug. And I think somebody who's compelled to pray out of legalism prays more than someone who's totally free in Christ and has this open, nonstop invitation. That why would legalism motivate somebody more than what Jesus has given to motivate? And uh, I just hammer myself on that for a while. It doesn't necessarily fix my problem. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe temporarily, right? For like a day or... Yeah. <laughs> but it, it's the compelling... I, I just find that like amazing. What legalism motivates not believers to do, and yet they outshine me some, uh, often in their own pursuits. 
than what the gospel does for me. Yeah. In practical everyday life. Yeah, that, that, that freedom we have can, can be abused, right? Just once again, those, those misordered priorities. You know, that, that time you could spend in the Word of praying is filled with something else, right? It's going to be filled with something else you're doing in your life. Like watching Seinfeld, maybe, or some other shows you've been watching, binge-watching. Any other thoughts? Right, so I guess the, the summary this week is, uh, as you read Scripture during that morning time, if you don't do that, I would encourage you to, to at least start, and start small. It doesn't need to be half hour. It could be a few minutes, like we've heard. It could be five or ten minutes, just, uh, just reading a word to kind of, just kind of set you out on your day in the right way. As you go through the days, you see God's beauty as it's getting actually a little bit sunny outside and such a beautiful time of year. Think about God's glory revealed in creation. And uh, think about what the doctrine of God, is, as it's revealed in Scripture, means for your life, how you should live that out. So we're going to uh, kick it up a notch, as Emerald would say, the old the chef. We're going to kick it up a notch. Next couple weeks, we're going to do two chapters. So we're going to look next week at the, the holiness of God. So read both chapter 5 and 6, I think it is, on the, the doctrine of holiness and holiness in everyday life, and then on the sovereignty of God the following week, and then we'll be done for the summer. So if you have fallen behind, you can take the whole summer to catch up. You take, the, take this book on vacation with you. I was talking to my mom, went to see her on Friday for take her out for Mother's Day, and she's been reading the book and really enjoys the book, but she mentioned again how heavy it is. Uh, not, not like intellectually heavy, but like physically heavy. And I told her, this is your chance to get a workout in the morning. So, I mean, you could do, you could do curls with it. You could do shoulder presses. This is a great, I mean, it's a multi-purpose book, right? It just fix, fixes your heart and your body, so... I hope you're finding it uh, interesting. I know I've certainly enjoyed reading this book and, and uh, digging into it. So I enjoyed our time together. So let's finish up in prayer, then we'll uh, take some time to, to chat before worship service. Father, we have discussed some amazing things today. We've discussed your glory. We've discussed the essence of who you are and how you've, re- you've revealed yourself in, in creation and scripture. And we talked about uh, how that should play out in our lives on a day-to-day basis and Father, we will all admit that we, in one sense or another, are practical atheists, that although we confess to love you with our, with our lips, our hearts often and our, our actions often show something else. And we're humbled when we think about questions Paul Tripp asks about, if I could look at your, your life for a month, what would that look like in terms of your, of your love for God? So, Father, we are humbled when we think about that. We, we thank you that it's your grace that helps to conquer this, this glory war in our heart. We seek to glorify ourselves or others instead of you, and we are humble thinking about the, the grace you show to us on a daily basis. So I pray you would help us to read Scripture with an eye towards seeing who you are and how you would have us act. We pray for the grace to do that and the power of the Spirit. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.